0: You're listening to The Martial Brain. The podcast that explores the intersection between the martial arts, science, critical thinking, skepticism, and that wacky organ that floats inside our skulls in a pool of cerebral spinal fluid, making life unpredictably inspiring, infuriating, and sometimes just batshit crazy. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The Forgotten War. The Philippines, the USA, War, Colonialism, and the Martial Arts. Part 22. Two episodes ago, I finished the story for you of Macario Sakai, the last Filipino to lead enough troops against the Americans that he could plausibly be called a general. But once Sakai was fooled into being captured... Put on trial and hanged, the problems for the Americans in the Philippines were far from over. Remember when Teddy Roosevelt declared the Philippine American War to be over five years earlier, on July 4, 1902? That declaration led to most of the American regular troops being brought home, and those that were left behind were nearly always kept snugly buttoned up, safe in their barracks, seeing little or no combat, which was just the way the folks back home wanted it. That left the incredibly dangerous job of dealing with remaining guerrilla groups to the relatively tiny and woefully underfunded Philippine constabulary. And boy, did they have their work cut out for them. When you look at a map of the world, the Philippines might look small to you. But that's just a mistake of scale. The Philippine archipelago features a land area greater than the British Isles. That's England, plus Wales, plus Scotland, plus Ireland and it sports a total coastline longer than that of the United States. Process those facts for a second. Now, consider that in 1902 there were barely 100 miles of road in the entire Philippine archipelago. A hundred. That's after almost 400 years of Spanish rule, and the benevolent stewardship of the Catholic Church. On the much-fought-over island of Samar, there were about five miles of road. Now think about this. The American forces that had been fighting the insurrectos had numbered 70,000 at their peak. The constabulary would never have more than 7,000 men. Yes, it's true that once the American military had disengaged, The insurrectos had been beaten so badly that they could no longer hope to mount large, coordinated, conventional attacks. But there were still tens of thousands of them distributed fairly evenly throughout the archipelago, especially in the center and south, actively resisting the Americans and the Filipinos that were working with or for the Americans and causing no end of trouble for the American-run civil government. What is true is that the vast majority of these resistance fighters now operated in very small units. There was no national unity of mission or purpose among them. The official position of the Philippine Commission, which was the group of Americans in charge of the Philippines, was that these resistance fighters were bandits, and that dealing with them was a law enforcement issue. And, of course, as I have already told you in previous episodes, the Philippine Constabulary was established to deal with these, quote, bandits, unquote. There are hundreds of small stories about these myriad small groups of resistors. Many of them did indeed effectively become bandits, no matter what they called themselves. Such groups lived by terrorizing the local populace, whom they would often accuse of collaborating with the Americans, but who were really just trying to stay out of politics and feed their poor families. These homicidal bullies engaged in kidnapping for ransom, armed robbery, and assassination. The truth is that the war, and indeed before that the insurrection against the Spaniards, had groomed many of them for a life of carrying weapons and living in the jungle. They had gotten used to that life and didn't want to leave it. While most insurrectos had surrendered to the Americans so that they could go on with their civilian lives, these die-hard dead-enders didn't want to give up their weapons and didn't want anybody else telling them what to do. They couldn't take on the Americans and often couldn't take on the constabulary. But they could terrorize the local populace and live off of them as parasites. Of course, not all of the Filipinos still resisting were sociopaths or cynical outlaws. There were many small groups of Filipinos that still burned with rage over the injustice of the way the Spaniards and then the Americans had treated them. In their case, the local populace frequently voluntarily supported them. But the numbers of these righteous insurrectos were dwindling, and it became more and more dangerous for the poor peasantry to support them. There were also groups that were led by fanatical ideologues, usually preaching some sort of apocalyptic millennial religious message. Wow. Abject poverty, criminal gangs, millennial fanatic warlords, and a racist foreign government. You can see why this is a difficult story to tell in just a few chapters. But no matter the variability of the opponents, the consistency of the other side is quite stark. It was American officers leading under-equipped, outnumbered, often outgunned, and poorly paid Filipinos against all of these different groups. Sometimes the actions engaged in were indeed indistinguishable from frontier law enforcement. But all too often, it bore much greater resemblance to a low-grade war. Like so much of the story of the Philippine-American War, the story of the Philippine Constabulary is completely unknown to 99.9% of Americans. And yet it is every bit as much a part of our history as Bunker Hill, Gettysburg, and Omaha Beach. As I told you in an earlier episode, the American military brass strenuously objected to allowing the Constabulary to be armed with any weapon with a range greater than 100 yards. So they were equipped at first with pistols, And black powder shotguns. At the same time, a fraction of each enemy force often had captured Spanish Mauser rifles, state of the art smokeless powder weapons of war, with effective range well beyond 600 yards. After President Roosevelt's declaration of peace in 1902, the constabulary had been active for more than a year already and had acquitted itself quite well. This record grudgingly earned approval for equipping them with antiquated black powder rifles at least marginally improving their effective range of engagement, but still giving away the shooter's firing position with each shot emitting huge plumes of gun smoke. As a matter of fact, the only thing that kept many constabulary grunts alive during this period was the poor marksmanship of many of their opponents, despite their excellent weapons. Today I start telling you the story of one of these millennial apocalyptic groups of religious zealots that resisted the status quo and the constabulary. They were called the Pulahans. The Pulahans became such a problem in Samar and Leyte that the period between 1903 and 1907 is frequently referred to in history texts as the Pulahan War. The story of the Pulahan War is a sad tale of the rich cynically exploiting the poor, leaving them vulnerable to the growing influence of religious zealots among them, who were only too happy to also exploit them in a different and much bloodier way. Now, I had heard of the Pulahans before I began researching this chapter of Philippine and American history, and had always heard them described as suicidal religious fanatics, wearing red and wielding the deadly Filipino blade called the Talabong. There's even a style of Filipino martial arts called the Pulahan style. The word Pulahan translates literally as red. Why they were called Reds is up for debate. The Romantic description is of insurgents in flowing red robes and headgear, charging into rifle fire while brandishing razor-sharp talibongs. Sometimes, Pulahan is translated as meaning red pants. But many of these desperate fighters couldn't actually afford long pants, much less the expense of dyeing them red. What's more important is how they arose as an insurgent force. And I'll tell you all about it next time. Anyway, that's what I think. But I could be wrong. Let me know what you think, and check out old episodes of The Martial Brain Podcast at my website, rpmartialarts.com. I'm Jeff Westfall for The Martial Brain. The Martial Brain is produced by Raging Squirrel Productions in association with the Rising Phoenix Martial Arts Academy. If you like the podcast and would like to help it grow, go to iTunes or Stitcher and give it an honest rating and review. Contact me with questions about the martial brain or about the Rising Phoenix Academy at my website, rpmartialarts.com.